It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hello, and welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. My name is Talia Graf, and I'm the Director of Programs at Hartman. Yehuda is away this week, and so today's episode is brought to you from one of the programs that we ran a few weeks ago as part of our Summer of Learning. For this conversation, Ilana Steinhain, Director of Faculty, and Michal Biton, Scholar-in-Residence, sat down to talk about the most recent Pew study and the future of American Jewish life. For today's episode, we're featuring an edited version of that conversation. So I want to start by using some of your expertise Start us off with the following. What's the difference between the findings, and not just the findings, but even the question, in Pew 2020 and Pew 2013? And one of the reasons I ask this is because I feel like Pew 2013 is like a firestorm. And there were so many conversations about it, public fora. And Pew 2020 just sort of, it landed and... There have been a few conversations, but not too many. So what are the differences? What are we looking at here? Yeah, it's important to note that Pew, which was released in 2021, but reflects data collected in 2020, that there's some differences, some similarities to Pew 2013. The methodology changed a little bit from random digit dial to address web sampling. And there were some questions that weren't present in Pew 2013 that were actually new in Pew 2020. So for example, there were new questions about anti-Semitism. There were new questions about how Jews feel towards other Jews or towards belonging to the Jewish people. There were new questions about like different cultural activities that Jews do. There were new questions about politics reflecting the Trump years and different political shifts in the American Jewish community. There were new questions around race and ethnicity and like a whole richer and thicker understanding of the diversity in our communities. But Ilana, like you, you know, when Pew came out, it was really interesting because I have no idea how you experienced this. So I would love to hear your perspective. But in my world of like sociologists, there was so much hype before this last Pew came out and there was so much excitement and anticipation. And there were also people almost like gearing up for battle, like remembering what Pew 2013 was like. I don't know if you remember that, but there was like, you know, so many debates and so many almost like different themes of interpretation. And there were people gearing up for rigorous debate. And the way that I experienced it was that actually that hype didn't fully live up to it when actually the results came out. There was, like you said, almost like silence in the sense that there wasn't really much rigorous debate or even disagreement over how to understand or interpret certain data points from Pew. Now, I've actually been thinking about this for some time and I've been trying to diagnose the different receptions. Why was there such a loud reception in Pew 2013 compared to the recent release. And one reason I think it's quite obvious is that 
there was very little time when we think about like significant changes in the population. There were only seven years between these two surveys. So not that much change. Most of the big trends that we saw in 2013 continued in the same trajectory. So there was like nothing surprising there. The war erupted in Israel at the same time as Pew was released. So I think that kind of took American Jewish attention. And I also think, and I think we should engage in this conversation, I think that there's probably been some shifts in the intellectual and communal waters in our community in terms of what questions are thought of, what are areas that are important for debate, in terms of how we think about Jewish normativity, Jewish continuity, and things like that. If I can just process what you're saying, are you saying there are things that people are concerned about talking about? Meaning, I remember that after Pew 2013, there was a big conversation and there was a debate among sociologists, and you'll tell me if I'm getting this right, that you had people who were asking, do the Jews determine what Judaism is, or are there particular standards of normativity for what Judaism is? And that that was actually a live debate and a live conversation. Are you saying that that conversation is not happening because people are concerned about taking one side or the other? of that debate or say people are afraid of talking about normativity? Yeah, I think the way you're explaining it is almost like the philosophical underpinnings of the reactions. I think, of course, Ilana, you're going to go there. That's where I am. Communic analysis of the discussion. I think that, let's say, the surface binary that emerged was between people who looked at certain demographic trends in the Jewish community and the conversation after 2013 particularly centered on classical notions of Jewish continuity, like fertility in marriage versus intermarriage, Jewish childbearing. A lot of the focus was on that. And there was a group of sociologists that looked at the trends and said, oh no, the sky is falling. Things are really bad. We should do something. And there was a group of sociologists, and I'm simplifying here, and observers who said, actually, we shouldn't be pessimistic because of X, Y, Z. And some of the reasons were, as you noted, maybe those standards are actually outdated and Jews are doing different things now and you shouldn't hold these standards. So I do think that there has been a shift for some people, either because they changed their commitments in the way they think about the current reality and the Jewish future. And perhaps for some people, there is a certain concern to bring up certain questions in public because they've become much more fraught in a way that they weren't before. So you're kind of like entering a minefield. <laughs> yes. What are those questions that are fraught? Meaning, let's be very heartening about this. Let's say the things that people don't want to say. Meaning, are we talking about certain conventional aspects of Jewish life that had to do with institutional affiliations, that had to do with raising children Jewish, that had to do with Zionism? Meaning, what are the core issues that we're talking about that, this is really interesting, what you're saying it sounds like is that it's not that there's robust discussion around them, it's that maybe people are concerned about having robust discussions around them and let it ride and let's see what happens. Well, either they're concerned or they've changed their minds and their way of thinking about this. And let's make it less abstract. Let's give some examples. I'll give some and you'll give some from where you're sitting. So I know, for example, from where I'm sitting, that kind of like discussions, which were more common, let's say seven years ago, around fertility or Jewish child rearing or marriage patterns, There's a certain sense right now that it is not up to the community to pass judgment over the individual and how they decide to construct their family, right? That it is not up to self-appointed Jewish leaders or rabbis or scholars to kind of come and say, oh, you are loving the wrong person. You're married to the wrong person. You have the wrong family. And there's different reasons why people would give as to this being wrong. Some would say most Jews are doing this, so 
Judaism has changed and you have to stop having outmoded standards. Others would say by doing so, you're passing judgment in a way that causes pain and causes harm and that actually does painful things. Others would say like it doesn't maybe align with notions of social justice. We can tease those out. So I don't think it's a full monolithic, but that's one example of, at least from where I'm sitting, the sort of conversation that maybe 10 years ago was more likely to happen. And I think it's part of what gave life to so much of the conversation after Pew 2013. And that right now, like I said, the tides have changed. And individuals or leaders either have incorporated this critique and they say, you know what, I'm not saying this anymore. Or for whatever reason, they think strategically, this cannot be a position that I take in public. So that's from where I'm sitting. I mean, it's not just examples. I think it's actually a whole way of thinking, right? Anyone who's read Andrew Solomon's Far From the Tree, where he looks at families and identifies that there's a vertical identity, and that's the identity you inherit. And then there's the horizontal identity, which that's the identity that you choose. I mean, there's no question that what's in the water in our American sovereign autonomous self approach it's really difficult to establish norms and to talk about norms because people really do want to be able to make their own choices and have those choices not just tolerated, but validated. And I definitely do see this question of what do you do when the autonomous self meets communal conventions? And I think there is a lot of pain, actually, that happens there, meaning I don't think it's something that either of us as people who are both empathetic and traditionally minded people, like you have a high EQ and you also appreciate traditionalism and community, the collective, I think there's a real difficulty now of being able to say, well, these are some of the core commitments, the core communal commitments. And by the way, we're seeing this around Zionism right now as well, right? In the conversation of, well, really, do I have to think about Judaism as like a people? Can I think about it as a religion and I'm going to do my piece? Or I don't really like the norms of the community around Zionism. And therefore, I'd either like to start my own thing, or I'd like those norms to change, right? I mean, there's something in here about authority and power, which is actually very natural for the 21st century. We live in a rights-based society. Of course, that's the way that people are going to think. But what I'm hearing from you is that we're kind of a little bit worried about stifling debate. How do you actually look at that as having values in tension rather than assuming by definition that one trumps the other, whether it's the autonomous individual self and those decisions or it's the traditional communal? And I think it's getting harder and harder to hold those two. You kind of have to pick a side. That's the way that I'm seeing it, the way that I'm feeling it. And there's a moral valence to it which I think is really complicated. Yeah, I think what you're saying really resonates. And I guess the way that I would think about it, and I've been really influenced by scholarship in like moral psychology and cultural anthropology. And there's an anthropologist from the University of Chicago called Richard Schweder, who talks about like three different moral systems in the world. One of them is centered around God, one is centered on the individual, and one is centered around the community. And I always think about that. That's like, you know, what's at the center of your moral thinking? Is it the community or is it the individual? Let's put that aside for a second. And the interesting thing there is that there's always going to be trade-offs. If the community is at the center, then it's assumed that the individual would have to give up certain things. And sometimes even undergo tremendous pain 
for the sake of the community. And if it's about the individual, then that's going to make it much harder to actually maintain a community and to be able to maintain a sense of collectivity and like a holistic sense of being part of a group. And I'm going to bring God back in because I know it and I feel it the way we talk about God. Some of us talk about God as validating the individual and some of us talk about God as mandating collective norms. It's just true, meaning God is how we shape God in our imagination to a certain extent. Not that I'm making a metaphysical claim. I'm actually making a social claim as to how God is deployed in our communal conversations. I'm just curious, Ilana, because we brought God into the picture and just reminds me of like the many hats that you wear as the spiritual leader, as an educator, as a pedagogue, as a scholar. And I'm just curious because because of my training and my work, I have to care about Pew and I have to care about these sort of things. But I'm curious for you, right? When you were waiting for Pew or when you read it, do the numbers or the data that comes out, does that shape the way that you do your work, I guess. Like, yeah. like, are you going to change your teaching or the people that you teach or like your communal work based on certain data? Yeah, it's really interesting because my my relationship to the Jewish people as a people actually comes through a religious lens. For me, the Jewish people is a concept and a fiction of sorts, but a real fiction, right? I did my dissertation on legal fictions. I believe that they're real to an extent that comes through a religious requirement of really being with my people. So when I look at things in Pew, like whatever the percentages were, and you know the percentages more than I do here, of people under 30, where you have people who are flocking to non-denominationalism and you have people who are flocking to orthodoxy. I look at that and I ask myself like, okay, what do those people have in common and what do we need them to have in common? And is there something we need them to have in common? (laughs) Because obviously they are looking to Judaism in very, very different ways and looking for very different things. And by the way, on the individual and collective, it's very clear that what you have there is somewhat of a seesaw of people who are going to want to be told kind of what to do and people who are going to want to be able to shape what they do, even though that's oversimplified, because of course, every community has norms, even a non-denominational community has its own orthodoxies. And even within orthodox communities, there are people who are making their own decisions as to how they're going to do it. But from my perspective, I'm not a big institution person. For me, it's not about the institutions. It really is about the people. And what I always wonder is, do numbers matter or does conviction matter? And I'll say what I mean. I was talking to a bunch of rabbis today, and we were talking about the fact that you have this ongoing strife between the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. And the kingdom of Israel is 10 tribes. And the kingdom of Judah is two tribes. And, you know, through our American power politics lens, we say to ourselves, oh, kingdom of Judah, who cares about them? They're just two tribes. We want the 10 tribes. That's who we care about. And in the end, ever heard of the 10 lost tribes? We are the kingdom of Judah. We're those two tribes. So when I think about what it is that interests me about Pew, it's not the numbers as much as it's a question of what's the thickness of that sense of identity? What's the narrative? What are the convictions that people are holding about who they are and what they are and what they belong to? And I think to me, the most concerning piece is when you have people saying, well, I'm not really sure that I have conviction about what I am. 
That to me is a problem because it's not about numbers. I don't need 80% of Jews to do X for what I'm looking for. I need whoever does X to really believe in X, whatever that is, that it really matters to them. And I know that that's really not an institutional take, right? An institutional take is you want to be able to have collective power, organizing ability, you need to have numbers. And that's just true. I'm looking for something else. I'm looking for the story. I'm looking for the sense of identity, the idiom in which people speak. And I want it to be deep. I want it to be profound. And almost by definition, it's never going to be the majority of people. It's just never going to be the majority of people. That's so interesting. I was speaking last week with David French, who's an evangelical Christian and a conservative commentator. And it's funny because he was speaking to me about his own vision for his work. He mentioned the biblical concept of the remnant, Sherita Peta. <laughs> Like the remnants of Israel, yeah. Yes, but for him, it's not about following the majority. It's about having integrity with your moral principles. And if it happens to be a very small group that aligns with you, that's what you're going to do. Which I think is very intriguing because it does bring up big questions. Because like you said, to build flourishing Jewish life, right? To have the sort of institutions, I know you said that that's not your priority, but the sort of institutions that we think about, the Jewish cultural life, Jewish social life. Numbers can be really significant, like, you know, just to have bodies. Like, but my question to you is, what are you willing to give up for numbers? Because my model is have as much ideological conflict as you want. It's actually great to have ideological conflict because ideological conflict means you have conviction. You care about something. My question is, if numbers matter, and I know they do, but the degree to which numbers matter, what are you willing to give up? And what's your limit where you say, I won't do that just to get the numbers. I won't give that up just to get the numbers. Yeah, so I do believe in numbers, which let's like define it, right? So in having like a strong Jewish demography, I do believe that that's a value. I believe it's a value that's supported by traditional and classical sources, if you want to go there. And also by like Jewish history and the like. At the same time, I have a lot of values, right? It's not a value that stands alone, like this like survivalist instinct that all I want is just more Jewish people. It's a value that stands in relationship with other values. So I'll tell you one of what I've been thinking about. And it's a little bit raw, so maybe we can think together. So part of what I've been thinking about in relationship with some of these trends, the discourse, the conversation, I am increasingly less moved to prioritize numbers if it requires my own definition of giving up major convictions in what I think is Judaism. Let me make it a little bit less abstract, okay? So when we speak about Jewish continuity, I think that people often have this traditional notion of Jewish continuity, like continuing something from the past, etc. But I would argue that there's a competing notion of Jewish continuity. And the competing notion of Jewish continuity is about engagement. It's about having individuals who are born to the Jewish people or join the Jewish people, having them continue to want to identify as Jewish somehow, even if what they're doing is different in the past. Is that clear, the distinction that I'm making, Lana? Yes. The way that I think about it is it's thickness and thinness, if that's okay. Maybe I shouldn't simplify it. You say more and then let's see where we get. I'm already trying to give it categories in my head. Yes. Now, the way that I would think about it is there's a notion of Jewish continuity, like I said, that's trying to almost like replicate the past and pass it as much as possible to the future. And there's another notion that basically says, if I need to change the tradition to align with where people are now, 
to keep them in, then I'm going to do that. I'm going to have almost like an engagement strategy in which what Jews do is what Judaism is and becomes and is idealized. And that is, I'm arguing, a different way of thinking about Jewish continuity, right? Okay, so I'm concerned about what happens when, if you believe that numbers are important, let's think from a leadership perspective, right? So it's like, oh, all the people are moving to that direction. They're all leaving all of these commitments that I used to think were at the core of what Jewish community looks like, but people aren't interested in this. So then you have two options or maybe more than two options, but let's name a couple of them. One option is to double down on those commitments and to try to bring people back. Another option is to say, you know what? And I'm not criticizing. No, you're being descriptive and you have concerns. Yes. The second option is to say, okay, the people have shifted. My role is to be with the people and to move things to where the people are and to walk with them and to help them create a new Judaism and a new Jewish meaning. And if I don't do so, I'm going to lose all of these people. I'm not going to have the people. So I'm going to therefore change my commitments to look like what the people are doing so that we can continue to have them inside the Jewish fold. So I have concerns about that approach. Bringing back the conversation to what you asked about numbers, I'm concerned when numbers become the impetus to basically say numbers are more important always than certain commitments that you hold here. I think it's really interesting because if I think about the evolution of Judaism, in by the way, it doesn't matter which denomination, we always, to a certain extent, follow where the people are going. It's just true. You know, we have this saying in rabbinic parlance that if the Jewish people themselves are not prophets, they are the children of prophets. Mm -hmm. And that's used to justify a lot of things. Meaning, if this is where the people are going, this is where we're going to follow them. And so I guess in my mind, it can't be a binary of either or. Are we going to double down on what it is that we're passing down Or are we just going to follow where people are going? It is some sort of, what are the parameters that govern when you use which of these strategies? They're both there in Jewish history. There's no question. There's both there. So is it that it depends how salient the issue is? And if the issue is really the core of Jewish life, you essentially say, I can't move and I'm going to double down on where I am. Is it about the who? Who are the people who are going towards this new normal? Are those people the people who you think of as if they're not prophets, they're the children of prophets? I mean, what determines when you use which strategy? Because, I mean, look at anything in Jewish life in the 21st century that looks different from the 20th century, that looks different from the 19th century, that looks different from the 18th century. Oftentimes, the way that it starts is you have A small group, I mean, let's go back to Zionism for a moment. You have a small group that insists like, no, we're going in this direction. You all think that this is the wrong direction. We're going in this direction. And slowly but surely they gain adherence. They gain adherence. They gain adherence. And then here it is. It's accepted. Would you not have wanted that to be the case? Presumably the two of us sitting here are very happy that Zionism snowballed into what it is today. So What I want to flesh out, and maybe we can think in pencil a little bit together, is when do you use each of these strategies? And I think something that I'm realizing and that I'm seeing is that part of the decision to say, I'm going to double down and I'm not going to just move where people are moving, is if the concern is what we're losing here is something that is 
so core to what Judaism is supposed to be that we'll really be lost without it. But it's really hard to know what those things are sometimes ahead of time. Like hindsight is 2020. It's really hard to know what those things are. And I think oftentimes we're in a moment where we feel value X is threatened. And so I'm going to double down or value X is threatened. And therefore I need to reconsider value X. And it's really hard to know in the moment what the long view is going to prove was necessary or was not. Meaning I'm talking about a hundred years, 200 years. So I'm wondering if you agree that you kind of have to use both And if you draw a line somewhere and on what basis and what are we hearing from the people who we learn with and who we teach with the leaders in the field as to where people are drawing those lines? Yeah, I mean, I I 100% agree that I don't think of this as like an either or that I wonder to be one or the other. I actually wonder to be like a dance. I think that's like the work of Jewish leadership is to be in this dance and I think of Jewish leadership very expansively so I don't mean like formal positions but people who care about the future of the Jews and Judaism right that there's this dance between quote-unquote Judaism and the Jews there's almost like this covenantal constant conversation between them and this shift in which things change like you said and nothing remains the same I guess what concerns me is when you have one only right? When you either have people who say nothing can ever change and this is frozen and we're never going to adapt things based on like new moments and where people are going and all that. Because then like the covenant was made not only with the Torah, but also with people, right? Yeah. Uh, And then what also concerns me is when I notice the other approach, which is to basically say there's no Judaism, but what people do right now. And that can become very difficult if you have any notions of community, And if you have any notions of wanting to have something shared, whether it's values or practice or communal solidarity or whatever that is, that's very difficult to maintain if you have this sort of approach that you cannot have any sort of shared standards. So I agree with you that there's this dance or this combination that needs to be engaged in thoughtfully in terms of where people are, where they should go, et cetera. Yeah, but it makes me think also that it's really important to think about the Jewish community as an ecosystem and that there are some places where there's going to be a doubling down and that's really important. And there are some places where there's going to be an easing and actually to have both even simultaneously around certain things. It actually goes to the point that you were making that engagement is actually only possible on that large scale. If you're going to sort of open things up a little bit, But ideology is only possible if you're actually willing to say, I'm going to stick with it, even if it means that I'm going to lose some people along the way. And I kind of think it's inevitable that we're going to see both in the Jewish community. And I'm not sure that that's a bad thing, because I do think that it allows for everybody to stay in, in some ambiguous way. And it really means that the move to centralize things that actually tamps down on the ability to do that, right? Right. So the more centralized you are, the more you have to choose one of these or the other, but the more localized you're willing to be and the more understanding we're all willing to be of where people are sitting, actually, the more rigorous the debate can continue to be and the more possibilities are open. You know, you and I have spoken about the fact that it's a free market, right? Like Jewish life is a free market. 
So if it remains a free market, then people are going to do what they're going to do. And it actually, I'm just thinking more and more these days about the short term versus the long term. And what does it look like to have both strategies at once to basically say, we're the people, whoever the we is, we're the people who say, this is our ideology and this is the boundary and that's what it is. And you're going to get smaller. It's just what's going to happen. And then you're going to have people who are going to say, we're going to let it open. And I wonder what happens a hundred years from now, if those sides kind of let each other be a little bit rather than attacking each other as immoral or undermining all of Jewish life. I just, I wonder what happens if you leave those portals open and you kind of, you let them be. Right. Interesting. I think for me, part of the reasons that I love being part of different communities that have very different Jewish moral commitments and different, I would say, sociological configurations is that I think each of them has a different trade-off and different values. And I think it's wonderful to be part of many of them and have just, you know, different conversations and different modes of engagement. Hi, my name is Michelle Biderstone, and I want to tell you about an exciting, groundbreaking curriculum we are launching at the Shalom Hartman Institute. Foundations for a Thoughtful Judaism is based on four decades of the best Hartman scholarship on the foundational concepts of Judaism and Jewish life. This new four-volume curriculum explores the most compelling questions in Jewish thought and makes them accessible to all audiences. It's not a how-to Judaism 101 course, but instead serves as a complement for those looking to grapple with philosophical questions at the heart of Jewish tradition specifically Jewish peoplehood, faith, ethics, and practice. To find out more on how you can bring foundations for a thoughtful Judaism to your community, please visit shalomhartman.org slash foundations. Let me go back to something you said earlier, because I'd love you to elaborate on this. I think before, if I understood you correctly, when you were talking about what are you willing to compromise on, how do you walk with people where they're going, and also, you know, have a certain sense of who you are and who you want to be. And you spoke about core commitments. So I wonder for you, when you think as an educator, as a leader, about the core Jewish commitments that you think are the most important when thinking about the Jewish future and thinking about the kind of work that we want to do Again, if we allow ourselves to think aspirationally, thinking about the future, what would those commitments be? So this is hard because I really don't think that all these commitments are going to fit everyone, but I want to share a story. When my son got his Sidur, got his prayer book at school in first grade. So they ask us to put a, an inscription in. And the inscription that we wrote in there was, we really hope that this book brings you closer to God, the Jewish people and humanity. And I think I would say that for me, those are my three core Jewish commitments, God, the Jewish people and humanity. And I don't know, like going back to God as is God universalist, is God particularist, is God validating the decisions of individuals as God validating the standards of communities, you know, God fits into both the Jewish people and humanity. So I'm not totally sure what the order is in terms of God's involvement in those other two. But I think that I'm very comfortable saying on a broader level that Jewish peoplehood, I think 
I think it's a core. I would like it to be a core commitment for all Jews. What does that mean, Ilan, in Jewish peoplehood as a core commitment? What it means is that Judaism is not, it's not exclusively a religion, meaning Protestantism and Judaism are not the same thing. We're not a Western construct of you are what you believe and that's what constitutes your Jewish identity. We actually are a construct in which Judaism is a culture, it's an ethnicity, it's a religious discipline. And I think an awareness of those various layers, and especially, I mean, ethnicity is probably the one that's really hardest right now because it touches on universalism and particularism and questions of ideology versus family and things of that nature. But I think we're really cutting out the Bible if we're going for Judaism as just what we believe and the ritual acts that we do. Because our story is based on Genesis 12. It's based on Abraham's progeny. It's based on something familial. And that commitment, I think, gets lost among a bunch of people. And it doesn't matter how religiously liberal you are or how religiously conservative you are. I see that the idea of recognizing that one's fate is tied to a people even with whom one disagrees, is a really hard concept to hold on to in the 21st century. And I think it's a necessary one. And I think it's not an accident that for Hartman Jewish people, it is a big part. Now, where God fits into this conversation, this is where people are going to do different things and their Judaism is going to say different things. But in terms of the construct of what Jewish life is, I think there has to be a recognition that Judaism is an ethnicity. It is a culture. It is a religion where someone finds themselves in terms of what they practice, what they don't practice, what they eat, what they don't eat, what they can read and what they can't read. That's something else. But I don't want people to deny what I see as like descriptively true is essentially what I'm saying. Just like I don't think people can deny that Judaism is originally built on a relationship with God. It doesn't mean that all Jews are religious. I mean, we've looked at Pew. That's clearly not the case, right? But you can't deny that it is. So there's something to that that I think in my teaching, I'm very comfortable, no matter what the stripe is, to be able to try to assert a certain collective relationship between Jews in lots of different places. And that's kind of countercultural. It really is. Yeah. And it's funny because Pew said that eight out of 10 Jews feel a connection to a sense of belonging to the Jewish people, right? So this idea, like you said, of Jewish peoplehood. But when the questions actually broke down by subgroups, like asking different denominations who they felt connected to, then you saw, for example, that only like 9% of Orthodox Jews felt like they had a lot in common with Reform Jews. So there was something really interesting there, I thought, like a gap between the imaginary, the ability to say I'm committed to Jewish peoplehood more broadly, and then when you go into specifics and say, oh, but this group and that group, do you feel connected and responsible for them? That's much harder. But by the way, I want to be honest here. I don't think that Jewish peoplehood means only solidarity. I think Jewish peoplehood also means having arguments because so much of, and I'm always coming from the rabbinic tradition on these kinds of things, So much of the way that the rabbis talk about Jews are responsible for each other. It's not Jews are responsible for each other and therefore you should help each other if something's going wrong. It's Jews are responsible for each other. So if somebody's doing something really bad, 
you really have to pipe in and say, you can't do this because what you do impacts me. Whether you're looking at it from a metaphysical perspective, a political perspective, a social perspective, or even, by the way, just the ethical character of some concept of a collective. And I think that's also really complicating because if the idea of Jewish peoplehood is that you both have a sense of solidarity, shared fate, identification with, and also a sense of, whoa, accountability for, sometimes those are really deeply in tension with each other. And there's only so long you can spend arguing before you decide, why do I want to be accountable for these other people? Why do I want to have solidarity with these other people if I don't want to be accountable for what it is that they do, right? So I understand the impulse, but I still think that it would be descriptively wrong to give up on Jewish peoplehood in terms of what Jewishness is. I think it's missing a dimension. That's really interesting. You know, Ilana, when you spoke before, I think you introduced one word there that I would say in terms of one of the core commitments that I think a lot about. You spoke about Jewish peoplehood, even though it's countercultural. And I've increasingly thought about the whole idea of counterculturalism as a core Jewish commitment. Uh, <laughs> I love the Midrash, the rabbinic explanation, asking why was Abraham, Patriarch Abraham, called Abraham Ivri, right? The Hebrew Abraham. And they take the word Ivri, which today I think we would think in terms of Ivrit or being part of the Hebrews, and they describing as the whole world stood on one side and Abraham stood on the other side of the river. And that's always been a very powerful image for me as to like what's at the core of being Jewish. And at the core of being Jewish is being willing to stand on the other side of the river in whatever society you're in, whatever moment in history. So one of the, I know that one of the questions that I've had with friends and colleagues has been less about what you decide is the nature of your counterculturalism. Is it about belief about community about practice like I care a little bit less about the content of that and more is there counterculturalism in your Judaism in the sense like do you have something because you're Jewish you stand apart from the rest of society again whatever that looks like and again if I'm being a little bit more specific in my core commitment is it something that there's a trade-off that there's like a cost in light of broader society because you're standing in this way so that's something I think a lot about I think that we get very lost in the American Jewish community in like figuring out what are the boundaries? What are the things that we're doing? And, you know, like you said before, when I think about Judaism, I think about Jewish communities. So I think there's different communities, different boundaries, different practices. And I'm more curious about the question, can all of these different and diverse communities hold on to the notion and the value of counterculturalism, Jewish counterculturalism, even and because it will look different in each of those communities. Well, you know what's so interesting about what you're saying? That is such a minority identity kind of value. And I think it's actually two wrapped into one, right? Being countercultural, but being willing to sacrifice for being countercultural. It is such a minority identity perspective. And I just find that really fascinating because American Jews, yeah, we're a minority, but like, I don't know that we feel Obviously, there's increased anti-Semitism on the right and on the left, and I want to be very careful about that. But I don't think that our feeling of being a minority is the same as the feeling of our ancestors of being a minority, where that counterculturalism 
didn't come with power. Oftentimes now when we're being countercultural, it's we can stand with the marginal and the oppressed because we have power. So it's just interesting to see what exactly are you sacrificing when you actually have the power to be countercultural and you can shift tides rather than being countercultural and just staying that strange alien life form called Jew that just doesn't fit in with society, right? It feels a little different. Yeah, to be clear, I'm not advocating for this like martyr-like. No, no. I think you can very much fit into society and be part of majority culture in many ways. But I always wonder, even at this time and in this place, are there ways in which we think of ourselves as different, even when it's inconvenient? And maybe in the future, maybe not like right now, but like, you know, I'm going to stand for this even when it's not as convenient anymore. And again, like I said before, I'm not talking about one particular thing. I'm talking a little bit more broadly about having value of different. I think it's profound. I know we don't have much time left, but I actually want to bring up something that I've heard you talk about a lot and I really appreciate it, which is a Spartic model of community versus an Ashkenazic model of community. And I'm wondering, as you look at the data from Pew of the way that people feel connected or not connected or what they think Jewish continuity means, I'm wondering if you think there's a lesson here about whether the institutions and the constituents have to really be the same and match up. Like I've heard you talk about Sephardic communities being able to just let people be who they are outside of the synagogue and in the synagogue, everyone does what they're supposed to do. Whereas in other communities or communities that I think a lot of Ashkenazic Jews inhabit, it does not feel that way. It's actually the expectations are kind of more do you fall in line with the fullness of the ideology? So I'm just wondering when you look at Pew, if this were to be a real understanding of Sephardic Jews, what questions would be different? What conversations would be different? What data would be different? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I haven't thought about it in the way that you just asked, like what survey would I put, even though I should. I should come up with the national survey for Sephardic Jews. You will. I know you will. I guess I'll say the following, Ilana. And let me just first be clear. I'm very careful to not pretend like all Sephardic Jews and communities are the same or Ashkenazi Jews. And com- you know, there's a lot of different... Of course, of course, and, of But course. I'll present some models that I've thought about. So I've thought a lot about what we would describe as like the traditional Sephardic model. And when I say traditional, the word that scholars in Israel would use when talking about Mizrahi Jews is Masorti. So it's something traditional. And the way that a traditional Sephardic community is configured this is my own language, is in a way that is inclusive, but not pluralistic. So what does this mean? The way the community will be configured in this particular model is basically saying, we have a certain sense of tradition, okay? Certain core practices and commitments, certain principles, we've inherited them, or we imagine we've inherited them from our parents and grandparents, and they're going to be at the center. And our religious leaders are going to follow them very carefully and are going to live lives that reflect that. At the same time, in terms of who belongs in our communities, who sits down at the Shabbat table, who celebrates together, who gets to come to synagogue, everybody is welcome. You should all come in. We're not asking you at the door what you do, what you don't do. We want you inside. We want to include you. And at the same time, the fact that you are different or the fact that there's like this expected deviance is not supposed to reshape the center or what a community looks like. I actually often think of it, I haven't done research on this, but I think there's probably a lot of similarities between the Chabad model 
and the Sephardic model. In terms of basically saying like, we want to have this warm, authentic place that we're including you. But again, we are not going to change like the basic core commitments of the space because of you. So there's a very interesting relationship there in terms of what it means to make people feel at home. And also in terms of the expectations that people would themselves have, you could right. nourish a state of being in which people would feel comfortable, even while they know that their practice is different or deviant from the ideal, right? So you could nourish a community, again, maybe, in which that is part and parcel of what it means to belong and in which that doesn't actually make you feel like you belong less or like you have to feel guilty about it because you don't do a certain thing. So that's, I think, an interesting model. It's an interesting historical model. Most Sephardic Jews, especially from the Middle East and Northern Africa, did not go through Western European enlightenment and emancipation. So we didn't develop religious denominations and a lot of new ways of being Jewish, even like Orthodoxy ideology, that weren't part of the Sephardic experience in the same way. So that's the Sephardic model that I don't think it's going to become a popular model in America anytime soon. But to me, especially if we're thinking not in terms of numbers, but in terms of possibilities we can think about and consider and play with, I think it's a very intriguing model in terms of how do you formulate a vision of community that has this dance between quote-unquote Judaism, what it is, Jewish commitments, core Jewish commitments, and where people actually are. Yeah, it really gets us back to the sovereign self and traditional community conversation of the balance there. I think I want to talk about one last thing, which is in the Pew study, you mentioned before the idea that Jews were asked what their relationships are with each other, American Jews. And I'm really intrigued. You know, we talk about Jewish peoplehood and you find in Pew, 82% of people said that Israel was important to their Jewish identity, which sounds like peoplehood conversation, right? It sounds like peoplehood. But then when you ask American Jews how they feel about each other and what they thought about each other, it didn't really sound like there was much collective identity going on there. And so I'm wondering when we think about Jewish peoplehood or Jewish collectivity, is it actually just easier to think about Jewish peoplehood with people or places that are far away than with people who are close. Does a sense of Jewish people that actually depend on not necessarily sitting at the table with those other people and getting to know them in that way, but not having to work out the difficult issues with each other? Yeah, that's a dark question, right? Or maybe it's just realistic. Yeah, I think the numbers that shocked me were like really high numbers. 77% of conservative Jews have a lot or some in common with Jews in Israel. Reformed Jews, 61% have a lot or some in common with Jews in Israel. 91% of Orthodox Jews have a lot or some in common with Jews in Israel. Much higher, like you said, than other denominations in America. And I wonder, Ilana, if there's a funny distinction that we can make between those Jews that we interact with on a daily basis, those that are really far away, and then those that are like, close enough to threaten us, but far enough that we don't know well, right? So I think there's something really interesting philosophically and also just pedagogically for us to think in terms of Jewish education about the fact that there's this space of, I guess, partial intimacy or maybe an illusion of some familiarity and that that can sometimes just lead to tremendous feelings of just feeling threatened or feeling animosity or just feeling disconnected. 
in a way that it's much easier when you either interact with in a real way or when, like you said, someone is far away and it's easier to imagine them, <laughs> to imagine the sort of relationship that you can have with them. I'm always pretty inspired by Suzanne Langer, this 20th century philosopher who talks about the difference between signs and symbols. And symbols are a higher order of thinking. Signs are Pavlovian conditioning. You see a stop sign, you stop. A sign could be rain clouds. So you know what to do. You take out your umbrella. But a symbol is something else. A symbol doesn't tell you what to do. A symbol is something you can imagine no matter where you are, right? So you imagine a stop sign. What does that mean? What's the metaphor? What's the concept? And it's just interesting to me that I think at the level of symbol and symbolism, it's much, much easier to do Jewish collective thinking than at the level of sign where you actually have to work things out and you actually have to share resources or compete for resources or share people or compete for people and that kind of thing. So I think we're going to close it out here, but I guess what I want to say to the people who are in our audience is that one of the things that I hope is provocative about this conversation is that instead of just talking about the numbers in Pew, we're actually talking about the reception of Pew and the fact that the conversation around these questions of normativity or what Jews do or engagement, as you put it, versus conventions or traditions and the autonomous self and the collect, that these are conversations that I know that Jewish leaders are having. And I hope that we're supporting our communities in having these conversations. So I really want to thank you, Michal, for being bold and being willing to do that with me. Thanks for listening to our show and special thanks to Ilana Stein-Hain and Michal Bitone. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced this week by myself and David Svee-Kalman and edited by Alex Dillon with music provided by SoCalled. Transcripts of our shows are now available on our website, typically a week after an episode airs. To find them and to learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people discover the show. You can also write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week, and thanks for listening.